Good afternoon. I'm delighted to welcome you to the first lecture in this year's President's Distinguished Lecture Series. This lecture series provides us with an occasion to publicly honor our own faculty and to give all of the Princeton community an opportunity to hear about their distinguished work. And if ever I needed uh, evidence of uh, how, uh, how much such an opportunity is welcomed, uh, it is in uh, this wonderful turnout this afternoon for Professor Grafton. This year, as, as last year, three members of the faculty will speak about their recent research. On March the 5th, Vincent Poor, Professor of Electrical Engineering, will explore the revolution in, in uh, wireless communications. Carol Armstrong from the Department of Art and Archaeology on December the 11th will present a lecture on Manet and Cezanne, a nice compliment to the recently opened Cezanne exhibit at our own art museum, which I encourage you to go see. I hope you will mark your calendars for both of those lectures. I'm very pleased that Tony Grafton, the Henry Putnam University Professor of History and Chair of the Council of the Humanities, has agreed to kick off the series, and I have asked his colleague, Robert Darton, to introduce him. Bob, who is the Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of European History and Director of the Program in European Cultural Studies, has taught European history at Princeton since 1968. His research mainly concerns 18th century France, the history of books and censorship, and his highly acclaimed works include The Great Cat Massacre and other episodes in French cultural history, and the forbidden bestsellers of pre-revolutionary France. At present, he is preparing an electronic book on publishing and the book trade in 18th century France. Bob is the winner of numerous national and international prizes for his scholarship, and his teaching at Princeton gets raved reviews. One student recommended Bob's French history course saying, and I quote, if you are looking to take a history course, do not miss this one. Professor Darden is witty, funny, and engaging. This class is one of the reasons you came to Princeton. Another described him as one of the world's most recognized and knowledgeable scholars in French history, and then concluded by saying, Darton is the man. And with that, I turn it over to you, Bob. Thank you. Actually, we should be introducing Tony, but I'm delighted to be misrepresented in that way. Uh, actually, strange as it sounds, Tony Grafton does need an introduction in Princeton. Of course, you've all seen him wandering around the campus. He has his finger in almost everything. Uh, he was one of the creators of the freshman seminar. He's been very active in the Center for Jewish Studies, in the, the uh, European Cultural Studies program. He's directed the Davis Center. Now he is heading the Council on the Humanities. He's everywhere, uh, but in a way that creates a difficulty because 
there's a danger of taking Tony for granted. And by that, I mean of not reading him. Reading him, in a way, isn't easy because there's so much to read. As I count it, something like more than a dozen books and well over a hundred uh, articles and reviews, the, 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 the turnout uh, and output is simply prodigious. But there is a way, I think, in which some of our leading scholars here in Princeton aren't quite appreciated, because we do take them for granted. So if you want to, in a way, get the measure of Tony, the best place to go is away from Princeton, where you hear nothing but, are you a colleague of Tony Grafton's? What do you think of his latest article? Uh, a good, a good uh, point uh, from which to get some perspective on Tony, I think, is Berlin. Now, he was a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin a few years ago. One of his colleagues was Germany's, some would say, greatest living poet, Hans Magnus Enzensberger. Uh, Magnus spent two or three lunch, luncheons with Tony, and after that, he came up with a poem called Der Renaissance Forscher, the Renaissance Researcher. It's quite an astonishing poem in many ways. It begins with the wires that are intersecting in Tony's head as he <laughs> contemplates the 16th century. Uh, the idea is all the interconnections, the arcane byways and pathways of Renaissance thought. And then the subject of the poem closes his laptop computer and drives home under a landscape of telephone wires. Uh, it all works rather well as a poem, but of course, all of us, all of us who know Tony know he doesn't drive. <laughs> Poetic license. What Tony does, actually, is he walks. And many of you have seen him walking from Hartley Avenue to Dickinson Hall reading a book. How he does this and manages not to get killed, I don't know. But apparently he can consume a book or two between Hartley Avenue and Dickinson Hall and then write the review of it in his head as he walks back home. <laughs> he is a prodigious figure. I mean, he's no longer a wunderkind. He's a superstar. But he manages to keep his perspective. And, of course, now that he's really the brightest light, I would say, in our galaxy, he has won the famous Balzan Prime. So it's, we think of him as our Nobel laureate, and we congratulate ourselves collectively on Tony's accomplishments. What is it that makes him so not just fun to read, but so challenging and sometimes even upsetting to read? It's not the sheer quantity, although that's prodigious. It's not even the style, although Tony really is a delight to read. It's not, I would say, the erudition, although mixing the Greek and the Latin and the German and so on through these very, very arcane subjects that can be overwhelming. What I think it is, is its originality. Tony can take a subject that would seem the least promising thing possible, very difficult to read marginalia in very obscure treatises, and see them not just as something worthy of a footnote in a book about footnotes, for example, which he's written, but rather as a way to get into how people thought in the past. He makes connections between things that others didn't make. He has the historical imagination 
to bring things together and to open up the subject in a truly original manner. So the things he's going to bring together today, I believe, are science and magic, and we are delighted to hear what you have to tell us about that, Tony. Well, thank you very much, President Tillman, for the great honor of the invitation to deliver this address. And thank you to Bob, my dear colleague, for a really wonderful um, introduction, one far beyond my desserts, as I'm about to prove. Um, I think we'd like the lights to come down. progress. Yes, we actually have the proper two slides. My relation with technology, as Bob indicated, is a strictly scholarly one. <laughs> Shortly after 1650, a performer named Jean Royer appeared in the Piazza Navona at Rome, which you see before you. Royer had a skilled eye for a good stage, a dramatic setting, and he took his stand next to the spectacular Fountain of the Four Rivers, which had just been created and unveiled by an unmatchable creative and conceptual team, the Rem Kolhas and Michael Graves of the 17th century, Athanasius Kircher and John Lorenzo Bernini. In the sunlit theater of the Baroque city, where high-ranking prelates and noblewomen took the air in carriages and sedan chairs, and you can see them doing that a bit in the painting on your right, brilliantly devised hydraulic machinery forced powerful jets of water through a magnificently carved hollow rock formation. Stone river gods and animals, a magnificent armadillo, all so animated that they seemed to live and move, presided over the scene, a scene so dramatic even magical that the project's patron, Pope Innocent X, became ecstatic, like St. Teresa in her moments of levitation, when he first saw the fountain operate. Standing next to this magnificent device, Royer challenged it. A professional regurgitator, he invited slack-jawed onlookers from all over the piazza, and then as now the piazza was always full of slack-jawed onlookers, to come and watch, swallowed gallons of water, and then sprayed out streams of whatever liquid the members of his audience asked for. Perfumed oils, vinegar, possibly balsamic, wine, anything they wanted. Like the modern street performers who use cosmetics and costumes to imitate statues in that same piazza, Royer played with the distinction between art and nature and did it with incomparable elegance next to the greatest play of art and nature of the 17th century. But his performance was more dangerous than the ones that take place on Sundays in the Piazza Navona now. For Hoye was also toying with the borders that separated magic from more legitimate pursuits and natural from demonic agency. In mid-17th century Rome, the citadel of the Counter-Reformation Church, statues and fountains could operate, streams of water could go into the air, everyone knew it was all done by machinery. But only a priest could turn water into wine. The regurgitator's apparently unnatural art naturally aroused suspicion, especially in this time of crisis just after the end of the Thirty Years' War, when accusations of heresy and witchcraft and demonic possession regularly troubled the peace of the Catholic Church. 
Challenged to show that he wasn't relying on diabolic collaboration, Royer sought help from Kircher, one of the fountain's designers, and Kircher's friend and colleague, Gaspar Schott. Both men were Jesuits. They lived in the order's Roman heart, the Collegio Romano, now the best high school in Rome, where you can see one tiny preserved fetus from their great museum still there in the gym. They walked through the heart of the city from the Collegio Romano to the Piazza Navona. They watched Royer perform. They brought him back to their museum. And there, in the comforting presence of model obelisks, stuffed armadillos, models of the planetary system, and the bones of ancient patriarchs, Royer explained his art. He swallowed tiny sponges, he said, soaked in the various liquids that he was going to produce. When asked to produce wine or vinegar, he simply squeezed the appropriate sponge with his tongue. And the liquor that emerged from his mouth looked as it should and smelled as it should. And no one, he explained, had ever ventured on the only test that would decisively disprove their identity, the taste test, for obvious reasons. Now, Kyushu and Hoye were not surprised, and, and shot, sorry, were not surprised by Hoye's accomplishments. A Protestant acquaintance in Nuremberg, Georg Philipp Hausdorfer, poet and physicist, had sent them news of similar performers in the streets of Paris and the streets of German cities. So after hearing Hoye out, they willingly provided him with an official certificate, which told all and sundry that Hoye was a strictly or a legitimate performer who achieved his results with no diabolic help, simply by natural means. Schott even included Hoye in a magnificent book on hydraulic machines that he published in 1657 as machine number seven. <laughs> now, for Kircher and Schott, Royer's achievement illustrated something profound about magic as well as about the manual dexterity with which he popped those little sponges. This fascinating but frightening pursuit, they argued, took two forms. On the one hand, learned magi practiced the ancient art of natural magic. Using the powers embodied in the heavens by the creator, pulling on a subtle web of cosmic influences that stretch down from the heavens, they devised talismans and uttered prayers that warded off malign influences and brought benign ones down on them. These men, Kircher and Schott, practiced an art that was venerable, that had its origins in ancient Egypt and Israel, and that rested on true knowledge about the occult virtues of plants and minerals and really all things in the universe. Suitably updated, this same art, this same hermeneutical reading and manipulation of the web of forces in the world underpinned some of the inventions of which Kircher was proudest, like his magnificent sunflower clock, which you see up here, a clock supposedly powered by the magnetic force that permeated the universe, in which a sunflower turned through the day, both the motion of the sun pulling it along. Yet at the same time, a second kind of magic flanked the first in Kircher and Schott's practice, a kind which they called mathematical magic. Using optical, hydraulic, and pneumatic techniques rather than stellar influences, the practitioners of mathematical magic created devices that not only drew upon the powers of nature, as the sunflower clock did, but actually outdid them. Practitioners of this art, who included Daedalus and Architas and Archimedes in antiquity and uh, 
Johannes Regimontanus and Kircher and Jean Battista della Porta and more recent ones had created many kinds of device. Optical devices like giant lenses and mirrors that could burn the fleet of an opposing, of, an, uh, of someone besieging one city. Magnificent fountains, talking heads, robots, artificial birds that actually sang and flew, a whole clutch of devices that look, it has to be admitted, rather diverse now. They range, in fact, from what we might call modern scientific devices, like von Guericke's barometer, which Schott was actually the first to publish, to birds that sang when the sun rose, it's hard to imagine a single technology that can encompass these and so many other devices. Yet, in fact, all of them embodied a single complicated set of ideas and techniques in the first place. And I'll just go back for one sec. They didn't rely on incantations. They didn't rely on a language of power like Hebrew or Egyptian, which corresponded with the structure of the universe and enabled the votary to draw upon it. And here you see the contrast nicely brought out with the talismans that Kircher has laid out here and these devices strictly and vividly explained by the laws of optics on the other side. This kind of art rested on an understanding of nature, just as natural magic did, but not an occult mastery. The mathematical magician worked with openly available principles, the principles of optics, the principles of mechanics and simple machines. At their most intellectually ambitious, the practitioners of mathematical magic actually claimed, and you can see this here, to be able to mimic the motions of humans and animals, to be able to create machines that moved and spoke and flew. The natural magician, the old form of magician, saw nature as a text to be read, a web of meanings to be teased out. The mathematical magician treated nature as hard matter in motion and sought to intervene in it and change it and even surpass it. When Jean Royer set himself up as a human fountain, he showed how well he understood what mathematical magic meant, not just to street performers, but to learned men like Kircher and Schott. They inhabited the same structure, even if they lived and worked on rather different floors in that great wonder palace. It wasn't only human performers and automata that exemplified the mathematical magician's reductionist, mechanist view of natural organisms, one of the most surprising and, in some ways, modern-looking facets of their work. It also found expression in more dramatic forms, and I think a emphasize here my favorite, the vomiting lobster device. <laughs> now, this aesthetically irresistible organic machine proved beyond doubt that animals could be understood as mechanical systems. You take a cooked lobster, you lay it across a pot of water, and what you'll see is that the lobster's tail draws the water upwards by what we would now call capillary action, a phenomenon which had only just been marked off and understood. If you let the larger part of the lobster overhang the vase, as it does here, it will then automatically release the water that has soaked up into a second vessel below. The experiment had clear results. The lobster was already a challenge to categories. Was it a fish? Was it a, a land animal? Did it swim? Did it crawl? 
But this lobster, analyzed in this way, challenged the difference between animals and machines. Was it an organic being, or was it a simple machine, the siphon, one of the favorite subjects of Renaissance engineering? As Kircher and Schott examined the historical and textual record, they found numerous examples of mathematical magic being practiced, especially in ancient Egypt. The same mastery of hydraulics and pneumatics exemplified by the machines in their museum, by the vomiting lobster and the vomiting performer, had actually enabled the ancient Egyptians to create marvelous effects long before. Hermes Trismegistus, literally a name to conjure with in Renaissance Europe, was the supposedly Egyptian author of a set of dialogues in Greek and Latin, which describes nature and the universe and the way that the truly austere and learned person could dominate them. For centuries, European works saw these dialogues as the actual source from which Plato and other lesser thinkers had derived their doctrines. Hermes described the ancient Egyptian sages who, he said, had drawn daimons, diabolic spirits, down from the heavens into statues, animating those statues, making them able to speak and move. The passage terrified Renaissance Christians. It seemed to show that ancient Egyptian magic, though venerable and profound, had rested literally on diabolic help. Schott and Kircher, however, explained the animated statues in a completely different mechanistic way, not a scary indication that the Egyptians had really worked with devils. The Egyptians, they explained, had simply introduced speaking tubes and other devices into their statues so that hot air being forced upward could make a statue speak. Or here, in a slightly more complicated device, the air in this upper chamber being heated by the two candles would be forced down through these pipes and force the liquid in this, in this fountain upward through the nipples of this multi-breasted mother of the gods, which could thus miraculously offer sustenance to all who came. In the end, Kircher and Schott argued, a whole range of machines, most of them actually Alexandrian machines, we would now say, from the work of Hero of uh, Alexandria, created in the last centuries BC and the first AD, were the real products of ancient Egyptian technology and had enabled the Egyptians to do the formidable feats of moving columns and obelisks that had underpinned their architecture and the achievements of their civilization. The Kircher and Schott, in other words, felt that they could reconstruct Egyptian magic and Egyptian civilization in basically mechanistic terms. Now, when they argued these points, they didn't see themselves as exposing the Egyptians as frauds. Rather, Kircher and Schott insisted the Egyptians had practiced a particular kind of magic, mathematical magic, magic that relied on machines and lenses rather than on occult forces. And their views were not isolated or eccentric. Across the continent of Europe, from the Baroque Rome where they flourished, in the severe city of London, whose public spaces were dominated not by magnificent fountains but by little cisterns, John Wilkins, a sober Protestant virtuoso, also wrote a book on mathematical magic. Like Kircher and Schott, he included everything in this category, from dubious submarines to even more dubious weapons. He included a particular kind of carriage, which could be made to travel by the wind, with his own version of it. This is a sort of 17th century Edsel, um, as old people will remember, designed to catch the power of the wind from any direction and transmit it to the axle through a universal joint. 
like the Jesuits, Wilkins tried to understand ancient technology, arguing that Daedalus had used mercury to make his statues move. Like Kircher, Wilkins believed that just about anything was possible to the mathematical magician, even flight. If a young man would make himself good wings, Wilkins said, and practice constantly, trying first only to use his wings in running on the ground like an ostrich or a tame goose, touching the earth with his toes, he might by degrees learn to rise higher and in the end take flight. For all their differences of religion, profession, method, and emphasis, Kircher and Schott on the one hand and Wilkins on the other agreed on the formidable powers of mathematical magic. It could not only imitate nature, it could overcome and advance the powers of nature, enhancing the powers of the human race. Evidently then, imagining that there was a mathematical form of magic was not simply one of the many wonderful eccentricities of those Roman Jesuits who also did invent the cat piano, a clavichord um, whose power, whose, whose expressive power was a row of cats chosen by their voices going from low to high who were penned up every time you touched a key a nail would be driven into the appropriate cat. This mob is the original form of the Great Cat Massacre. And Kircher and Schott said that it was absolutely guaranteed to cure the most melancholy prince of his lethargy. <laughs> Mathematical magic flourished across Europe. In Paris, Marin Mersenne investigated it in order to prove that it could not be responsible for the miracles described in the Bible. In Scheveningen, on the Dutch coast, Nicholas Peresque went for a ride in the very carriage that Wilkins illustrates, amazing himself with the speed with which he progressed and the way that those he passed seemed to be moving backwards. In London, Cornelis Drebbel amazed the crowds with the submarine with which he traveled downstream underwater from Tower Bridge to Greenwich and which he used when he failed to receive any royal support for his enterprise, um, much more effectively to attract crowds to the pub that he opened. Evidently, a good trip in the waters of the Thames gave one a formidable thirst for something one could actually drink. Kircher and Schott belonged to an international cosmopolitan network of what we might call techies, and they called mathematical magicians. When they imagined, for example, how the ancient mathematician Archytas of Tarentum had made his artificial dove fly, and they imagined that he did it with a magnetic device suspended somehow in the sky. Um, when I worked in theater and we were imagining impossible devices for lifting things, we would say, that's a skyhook. And you'd tell the apprentices, go get a skyhook, um, which didn't exist. Well, this is a magnetic skyhook. When Kircher and Schott imagined this, they were not inventing, but actually borrowing another idea from their Nuremberg friend, Hausdorfer, who had elaborated the same bizarre solution earlier. What I want to do today is easy to state, if a little harder to carry out. I want to ask how this notion of mathematical magic took shape, how a particular body of machines and practices came to exemplify it, and then to argue that in time it became a central part of the language and tradition of magic and even of the intellectual foundations of natural philosophy in 16th and 17th century Europe. A number of wonderful scholars have traced parts of this story, from the great literary historian Rosalie Coley to contemporary historians of magic and technology like Bill Eamon and Pamela Long. But I'd like to argue that this tradition bulked larger than anyone has thought 
that it had a more stable and powerful intellectual identity, and that it performed more and harder conceptual work than historians have realized. In the end, mathematical magic became something like a foreign piece of mechanistic grit embedded in the organic magical worldview of men like Ficino and Kircher, but also in other stranger intellectual organisms where it acted as a perpetual irritant and eventually helped to stimulate the formation of that very different view of the world which we call the mechanical philosophy. The origins of mathematical magic lie in part deep in the Middle Ages. As early as the 13th century, natural philosophers like Roger Bacon had called in words that would ring down the centuries for the creation of devices that could make the human race more powerful and richer. Bacon thought it should be possible to create burning lenses, submarines, airplanes, tanks, the whole panoply of devices that came to be seen as the property of, as, as the core of mathematical magic. Bacon also believed that magic was powerful, but he never suggested that the devices he thought could be called into being would be brought into reality by magic. For Bacon, magic was an illicit pursuit, something, something characteristic of the enemies of Christianity, Tartars and Muslims, and he never identified it with what he called the scientia experimentalis, a science based on experience, not, I'm afraid, experiment, that would create these, uh, these vehicles of power. In the 15th century, the status of magic and the claims of technology and its practices both underwent a metamorphosis. And it's at this point that you can really see something new taking shape. Clerics, mostly without benefices, the equivalent of the modern graduate students without a job, always liable for uproar, and even some learned professors steeped in Islamic and Byzantine traditions began to write positively about magic. Pico della Mirandola argued that the magician wedded the heavens to the earth, bringing out natural powers and natural properties that otherwise would remain hidden. For him, magic was the consummation of natural philosophy. The learned magus had reappeared on the stage of European history. Not coincidentally, it was the age of Faust. But the magus wasn't the only new figure of power to stalk the streets of European cities. In Florence, in Siena, in Milan, in Naples, engineers of a new sort also flourished. They were tasked by the communes and warlords who employed them with practical jobs like building cannon and then designing fortifications that could resist cannonballs. But they were also employed on what were really magical assignments. From the 14th century on, for example, they built the great escapement clocks that told the hours in European cities and monasteries. And they equipped these with magnificent jacks, automata, that replicated the movements and even the sounds of birds and animals. This is the cock from the 14th century clock of Strasbourg Cathedral, a wonderful automaton. You'll note it's hinged wattles here. Every bit of it moved as it crowed to remind Christians of Peter's betrayal of Christ when the cock crew. The same clock also had moving, moving musicians, three magi visiting the Virgin, and much else. Conrad Dazapodius, the engineer and scholar who redesigned the clock in, 15, in the 1570s, explained the rationale for these automata. These devices, he said, excite great wonder from ordinary people when they hear music not made by men or the crow of a cock. The engineers saw it as an aesthetic 
professional duty to make automata dance and sing and amaze the onlookers in every European city square. The same engineers performed another vital service of the same kind. Every time a ruler entered a city that was newly subject to him or married off one of his children or a city government staged a, a similar pageant, to prove that the despots of little Renaissance cities had power not just over their subjects but over nature, engineers built spectacular pageant wagons, wagons that moved without animals to pull them as hidden teams of brawny soldiers pumped energetically at the gears that kept them moving. These magnificently decorated devices um, really did prove that the ruler could mobilize nature and make it move to his order. Whenever possible, engineers equipped these wagons, like their clocks, with automata that moved on their own as if magically animated. In 1452, when Borsa d'Este, the ruler of Ferrara, came to Reggio, he was greeted by a, just a magnificent display. I can't show it to you, but we can reconstruct it by putting these two together. It was a wagon bearing St. Prosper, patron saint of the city, who was blessing, and it was this sort of a wagon. And around the feet of St. Prosper ran eight little angels on a mechanical device like this, going back to Hero of Alexandria. Uh, it's an absolutely wonderful device. The little angels played drums, they played flutes, they rotated while St. Prosper blessed the ruler who was entering the city and all of his new subjects. The engineers who carried out these feats, rather like their rivals, the magicians, drew on ancient technologies. Most of the devices they used were Alexandrian ones, passed on and cultivated in the Islamic world in Byzantium and sometimes in the palaces of the West. But their attitude towards the world matters more for the moment than the sources in which, from which they drew their techniques. Engineers, like magicians, loved to amaze and frighten their audiences. Giovanni Fontana, an early 15th century Paduan engineer, he drew the first illustration we have of a magic lantern in operation, built this device, as he explained, in order to terrify people at night by giving them frightening apparitions on the walls of their rooms. He used his engineering skills, uh, as well as tricks he probably learned from professional theater people, to mimic the magician's tour de force. For example, he showed that you could provide an engineering form of the resurrection of the dead, what necromancers claim to carry out with spells. Articulate a couple of skeletons with wire, affix them to a clockwork of the sort that drove a massive city clock, and hey, Jingo, the dead danced again. Fontana took an interest in many forms of magic, from astrology to alchemy, and described all of them in a modestly entitled encyclopedia on all the things in the universe. But his central interest lay in applying the hard-edged tools of the engineering tradition to analyzing natural phenomena and creating artificial ones. He was a master of optics, for example, and at one point in the encyclopedia, he used that knowledge to rationalize away a widely held belief that he saw as superstitious. Throughout the 15th and 16th centuries, Italians saw omens in the skies. Monsters appeared, comets flew, armies marched. In 1403, Biagio Pellicani, Fontana's own teacher, had seen an army marching through the heavens over Lombardy. 
and both politicians and cantastoria, the chanters who sang songs about the past and future in Italian city squares, made use of these omens to predict disaster, usually correctly. Fontana insisted that these events were not omens at all. They were just optical events that happened in the sky when the clouds reflected armies moving or other appearances on the earth. He insisted, in other words, that his mechanistic way of understanding the universe provided stronger, better explanations of strange natural phenomena than the normal ones. More remarkably still, Fontana analyzed the characteristic motions of humans and other animals and created automata that could mimic them, very likely for staging plays or pageants. Modern scholars looking at early engineering drawings often complain that they're not formal working drawings. They show the devices operating, but don't give you a sense of how you'd actually build them. And they sometimes suspect that these engineers weren't really building their devices at all. They were just producing handsome manuscripts for the eyes of patrons whom they hope to attract. Fontana, however, makes a superb exception to this rule. It's true that he didn't explain how to make my favorite one of his devices, the magnificent firefighting rabbit weapon that you see here, scooting along the ground towards the castle that it's about to blow up. But in other cases, he was far more forthcoming. Fontana drew male and female devils, which inspired terror in real time by their appendages and by their extra orifices but which he then explained using the drafting skills of a 15th century Giacometti or Max Ernst to lay out the exact mechanisms by which he had constructed them. Now, at this point, I'm going to ask a, a learned associate, Louise Grafton, um, who is a theatrical prop maker herself, and that's a kind of descendant of Fontana, to join me. On, the, on your right, you see Fontana's she-devil, a second magnificent figure, first operating in real time and then in her diagram. And what we have here is Louise's reconstruction of Fontana's she-devil. It's probably considerably smaller than the original. We expect that the original was large enough to have a life-size person, or at least a life-size small boy inside it, moving it along a track and operating it. But this was the biggest one we could make and bring here. We could have the lights down a little. <laughs> As you see, from the fireworks to the remarkable movements of the wings, it's really possible to reconstruct this she-devil. We've called her Faye after Faye Welton's wonderful novel about a similar character. And if we could have the lights up again, please. Uh, we can show you that Louise actually built this from the 15th century drawing, um, actually uh, very much piece by piece, though Giovanni Fontana probably didn't have plywood or buy it at Home Depot. <laughs> but you can see that the, the mechanism that you see up there is the mechanism that you see down here. 
And in fact, when Louise built it, we understood something about the drawing that we hadn't understood before. The drawing has at least one mistake. Almost all early engineering drawings do. It shows something like a candle here, which is most implausible because it would have burned the thing down if it had been lit. We tried last week to burn down the American Museum of History with this device, but we failed. <laughs> Actually, the, uh, the line in question is the handle that the hidden, hidden persuader inside used. And if you'll notice, there's a string here. That string was a kind of simple governor that kept the handle from going too far forward. And it's only by building it that that became clear. As you, if you build it, not only will they come, but you actually understand what they're doing. Thank you very much. Fontana did a kind of engineering magic while insisting that he was no magus at all. When very learned and intelligent witnesses at Padua asked if he was really calling devils from Tartarus to make his devices work, doing necromantic incantations, he refuted them with contempt. His marvels were purely mechanical, he insisted. Yet he used his mechanical skills to challenge and even to outdo the magi, and I think he'd have claimed nature herself. And this form of engineering became part of the engineering tradition, pursued, of course, later by much more famous engineers like Leonardo da Vinci, who carries on in his notebooks the same kinds of interest in vehicles that move without evident means of propulsion, spectacular weapons, the mechanical analysis of the human anatomy, the mechanization, in this case, of childbirth as a process, and even the creation of carnival masks and other devices, which Fontana and others had made part of the engineering world. Leonardo was very much the engineer as magus, someone who loved to terrify his customers and others by the huge agglomerations of snakes and insects that he kept in his rooms. Someone, my favorite of his tricks was to scrape to transparency the entrails of a large animal which he laid in the corner of a chamber in the Vatican, passing one tube through a hole in the wall. He then went into the next room and attached a bellows. When a group of elegant courtiers in their leggy Italian best came into the room, he began to pump air through the bellows. And these transparent entrails grew and grew, <laughs> pressing them back against the wall, like the Moig in Pier Gint. It's a magnificent piece of engineering as magic. It's no wonder that even the Magi recognized the brilliance of the engineers, that Marsilio Ficino, the greatest of the 15th century Magi, told his readers, if you really want to understand how the universe functions, it is an organic web, it's all connected, but if you really want to understand it, go to the town hall and look at the clock. That device will show you how a single command can animate the universe on all levels. So in the course of the 15th century, the situation of the magicians became more delicate. The new theorists of witchcraft began to treat magic not as an innocent pursuit, but as a conspiracy largely carried on by evil women against Christian society, a conspiracy which was documented with hideous images, which was became the center of trials and, of course, became the object of confessions and convictions since torture led people to confess all of the activities that were ascribed to witches. 
when Pico della Mirandola stated boldly that magic could prove the divinity of Christ more powerfully than any other discipline, it wasn't surprising that he found himself stripped of his reader's card to the Vatican Library, examined for heresy by a commission, and finally convicted of heresy in a whole series of points. And it's just at this moment, in the critical years around 1500, as magic came to seem not just a learned but a genuinely dangerous pursuit, as engineering captured new heights of prestige, that a number of magicians made a brilliant theoretical move. They annexed the magic of the engineers for the magic that they themselves practiced. I'll only give one example, though I could cite others. Henry Cornelius Agrippa was a great magus of the old school. He drew horoscopes. He studied the Kabbalah. No form of magic was alien to him. But by 1510, though he'd studied magic, though he'd written a treatise about it, which he called On Occult Philosophy, he felt dissatisfied somehow with what he'd achieved. He laid the book aside. He went to Italy. And in Italy, in the 15-teens and 20s, moving in advanced technological circles, talking to Leonardo and others, he found himself losing his faith in magic and gaining a new faith in technology. He ceased to do astrology, refusing to write horoscopes, even at the cost of a lucrative job. He denounced the prosecution of witches, insisting that it rested on absolutely no basis. And he became a technologist who frequented craftsmen, like a favorite drunken clockmaker who reappears over and over again in his letters. He actually came to be assigned supervision of the Holy Roman Emperor's mines in Austria and seems to have worked as a mining and military engineer. He became celebrated for devices he'd created, like a mirror which enabled a friend to tell the dead part from the living one in a painting, a sort of automatic Ras Krauss, you know, the painting, the, the, the brilliant painting critic already mechanized. And when he finally decided to write and publish a work, it wasn't in the first instance on occult philosophy. It was an attack on all the arts and sciences, which he showed to be completely useless one after another. Alchemy, astrology, Kabbalah, natural magic, all worthless, all folly, all founded on illusions. The only pursuits he praised were the pursuits of the engineers, mathematical magic and architecture. These remained in Agrippa's book, a bestseller in 1529. Mirrors, lenses, lifting machines, these really worked these really created wonders, like Stonehenge, whose stones they had somehow lifted in ancient times, thanks to the wise druids who manipulated them. He admitted that all of these wonders seemed diabolical. In fact, however, they were all the work of one man, the Magus, who is a master of mathematics and knows the mechanical arts that derive from mathematics. When Agrippa set out to rewrite on occult philosophy, which he did, he filled it, too, with the praise of mechanical magic and its wonders. And he did so by the custom of the time, um, then a, an age when plagiarism was a, and of an artistic kind was a form of flattery rather than a breach of academic ethics, by quoting at length the greatest of the Italian engineers and natural magicians, Leon Battista Alberti, 
whose work Agrippa had read in Italy, provided him with a powerful passage on the powers of magic to cut through rock, tunnel through mountains, fill in valleys, restrain the water of the seas, drain marshes, change the entire face of the world. And it was the lifting devices that Agrippa read about in Alberti's book that proved in on occult philosophy that mathematical magic, like natural magic, could really bring about wonders. This encounter was historic. Agrippa, as he lost faith in the powers of natural magic, found his faith in the powers of humanity to intervene in and change the natural world, powerfully reinforced by the world of engineering. And so he simply annexed that world into magic. He called it another kind of magic, one that rested on different principles, but was just as amazing just as extraordinary, just as radical in its transformative powers as what magicians had always defined as their art. Agrippa's book became the best kind of bestseller, the one banned in Boston. A dangerous book in Venice, you would be brought before the Inquisition and condemned of heresy just for owning a copy of it. On occult philosophy circulated everywhere, never acknowledged by its publishers, but reprinted in its thousands. And every later magician of the 16th and 17th centuries, Giacomo Cordano, John Dee, Giambattista della Porta, drew on Agrippa and followed him in treating the mathematical part of magic as a separate and equal part of the discipline. Now, mathematical magic, in other words, had established itself, and it had underpinned magic as a learned discipline. The proved effects of mathematical magic were the only ones that really showed that occult philosophy could, as Agrippa claimed, work wonders. Mathematical magic was established. Yet even as the mathematical magicians found their place, their stable place in the mathematical tradition, the context they worked in was changing. Mathematical magic became a fashion, the sort of thing you'd read about in the style section of the times nowadays. Craftsmen who mastered the tricks of the engineers began to create devices that brought mathematical magic into the texture and practice of everyday life, not just the pages of theoretical books. Automatic devices that mimicked human and animal movements that challenged the distinction between art and nature, that showed the power of man to change nature, loaded down the tables of ordinary bourgeois households in Nuremberg and Augsburg. Take this wonderful German ship. It's a magnificent product of craft, carefully wrought to show the difference between the realm of nature below and the realm of human artistry above, though all of it, of course, is human artistry. It rode on offset wheels so that it rocked like a real ship as it moved down the laden table of a great patriarchal household. And as it moved, its little crew fired tiny guns and played little tinny salutes on drums and flutes. Not just princes, but every master of a great city house could prove his ability to control the powers of nature like a little Prospero. Machines did magic even more dramatically and prominently in gardens, in the magnificent formal landscapes that became an essential part of villa life in Flanders in Italy and then in the rest of Europe. 
Grottos encrusted with real and artificial shells housed water-powered automata that played music when you came close to them. Meanwhile, clever booby traps drenched any visitor who dared to inspect them too closely. Enter the gardens of the Aldobrandini Villa, Gaspar Schott told his readers, and you'd find yourself attracted by the cyclops playing its panpipes to look closely, and then, as everyone in the know dodged back, you'd find yourself with facefuls of water. Even innocent rose gardens were booby-trapped with pipes that sprayed those who imprudently leaned over to smell the artificial flowers. Now, the life of the European upper orders in the 16th and 17th centuries, that first age of civility, was, of course, a long series of humiliation games, as the treatises of Della Casa and Castiglione have taught us. But only mathematical magicians could mechanize those games, carry them out in this kind of dramatic and effective way that made the put-down itself the object of magical technology. Even mathematicians were charmed, overwhelmed by the powers of mathematical magic. Pierre de la Ramée, the great Protestant reformer of mathematics, insisted in his treatise on the mathematical arts that automata proved that Plato had been wrong. Mathematics was not an abstract philosophical pursuit, but an active one that could change the real world. Pierre de la Ramée was a Protestant who paid for his views by dying in the massacre of St. Bartholomew's. But the Catholic mathematician Adrianus Romanus was just as enthusiastic. In his treatise on military mathematics, he devoted a long chapter to what he called thaumatopoietic mathematics, the kind of mathematics that creates wonders. And he, too, described automata as central to this pursuit. For example, a silver goblet in the shape of a girl that he'd seen at Würzburg that could move down a whole table to any guest that stopped when it came to the end of the table as though it knew that it was nearing the end, and that once emptied and refilled could be sent to other guests for as long as half an hour before its clockwork engine finally ran down. Mathematical magicians had created a world of replicable wonders, wonders so rich, so elegant, so tasteful that they'd enchanted even the mathematicians themselves. Now, by this point, you may be wondering if my protagonist, to say nothing of me, might have suffered from a strange kind of schizophrenia. After all, these were learned men, real mathematicians. John Dee reformed the calendar, offered navigation instructions for the British Empire that was taking shape, built real machines. How was it that they could see incantations and levers as equally powerful ways of affecting the natural world. Didn't they feel some sort of cognitive dissonance as they engaged in these pursuits simultaneously? Now, I don't mean by this um, the simple point that mathematical magic often wasn't very mathematical. In fact, natural magic, the old magic, did use a lot of mathematics. You couldn't do astrology without it whereas you couldn't really mathematize most engineering problems in this period. You did them by dead reckoning. Um, that, I think, is a relatively simple point. These devices were associated with great ancient mathematicians. That made them mathematical. That was enough. 
The problem is that as we look back from our point of view after T.S. Eliot's dissociation of sensibilities, we're forced to see two worldviews embodied in these two different magics. One of them, hermeneutical, organic, seeing the world as a web of meaning. The other, mechanical, reductionist, almost materialist in its vision of the universe and how to exploit it. We find it hard, even impossible, to imagine that a single individual could inhabit both of those worlds at the same time. Well, in fact, it's just about the year 1600 that the intellectual kaleidoscope begins to shift, that that dissociation of sensibilities begins to take place. And it's in the reactions to it, which I'll lay out in three broad forms, that you can see the deepest impact of mathematical magic an impact that took place as this dissonance became evident, at least to some. To many who lived in Europe around 1600, magic lost its charm in the course of the early decades of the 17th century, simply because it was so pervasive. As wonderful machines became part of everyday life, connoisseurs of technology realized that they weren't wonderful at all. That is, Simon Stevan put it, wonders kein wonder. Wonder is not wonder at all, just the deft application of tools. When Konstantin Huygens visited Cornelis Drebbel and went down in his submarine, he was charmed. He wrote a letter to his father and back in Amsterdam. The father immediately wrote back, this has to be diabolic magic. You went underwater with this man, you must stay away from him, and found himself laughing at the ridiculous idea that what was obviously mechanistic technology could have anything with the devil, anything to do with the devil. The wonderful works of art and nature could easily come to be seen nothing more than the wonderful works of knowing craftsmen, style without substance. In the course of the 16th and 17th centuries, moreover, mathematics extended itself to the systematic study of mechanics of various sorts. Great works like, like the Aristotelian mechanics a work relatively little known in the Middle Ages, but one which said, as mathematical magicians did, that understanding mechanics would enable you to change and improve on the natural world, were recovered, studied, translated, commented on. So were the great works on Alexandrian technology. And these books provided a different context for thinking about great technological feats. When Domenico Fontana staged the greatest technological feat and media event of the late 16th century, the transportation of the obelisk that had stood through the Middle Ages by St. Peter's Basilica to its present place in the Piazza of San Pietro, he did invoke divine help. You see angels flying in his design here while his competitors' somewhat shady designs are on the ground and don't have diabolic assistance. <laughs> But his work was purely mechanical, as a magnificent publication with systematic illustrations showed. And when Henri de Monantoy, a French uh, scholar and scientist, published Aristotle's Mechanics in a critical edition, he used the Vatican obelisk to illustrate the power of pulleys and other lifting machines, assimilating this great wonder of technology, in other words, not to a magical pursuit, but to a mechanical pursuit, part of what he would have seen as the ordinary mathematical curriculum. In the course of the late 16th and 17th centuries, as Galileo and others engaged in a gritty collaborative struggle with craftsmen and engineers, and mathematics became increasingly reliant on instrumentation, much of the wonder was leached from the universe. When Galileo turned his telescope on the moon, 
he discovered that it was not a perfect sphere, but an ordinary world like the Earth itself. So the prevalence of mathematical magic, the availability of its devices, the development of mathematics and the uh, mechanical arts removed wonder from natural ma from mathematical magic for many. In other realms, in the wonder houses of the Jesuit order, for example, sorry, I've gone a little bit too quickly, and some engineers like Salomon de Coe actually took advantage of the new mathematics to explain wonders in a newly graphic way. This is de Coe's book, The Reasons of Moving Forces. You see him literally opening the door, shedding light on things, becoming the spoiler who pulls aside the curtain and shows you the little man behind it doing the work, the teams who provide motive forces for moving devices, the actual machinery that makes the singing dove work laid out for you and explained in terms of the new billiard ball physics of forces and matter in motion. All of this mathematization of nature in the end challenged and for many did away with the claims of mathematical magic. In the wonder houses of the Jesuits, to be sure, mathematical magic survived, and Kircher and Schott and others energetically denied that there was any problem. They went on doing incantations. They went on making homunculi rotate in little globes and creating anamorphosic perspectives of projections of strange images, committed to theatricality, passionately believing that mathematical magic would awe Chinese pagans and barbarous Neapolitans into true Catholic belief. The Jesuits stuck to their mathematical magic and became a little bit quaint in doing so, so that by the 1660s and 1670s, up-to-date visitors from England smirked as they entered the Jesuit museums and saw the devices that they were offered. Well, the intellectual space between Galileo and the Jesuits was a large one, as Galileo found to his dismay. And there were people who occupied it, who occupied a kind of middle position, and some of them were really important. They include, for example, the prophets of the 17th century new philosophy, Francis Bacon and René Descartes. These men hated magic, or at least they said they did. They despised magicians who resorted to spirits to affect the world, who claimed that the spiritual condition of an operator could have an effect on whether his incantations worked or not, who used codes and didn't clearly explain how it was that their magic worked. Yet Bacon and Descartes retained an enormous amount from the magical tradition, particularly from that of mathematical magic. When Bacon laid out in his utopian New Atlantis a program for a magnificent set of laboratories, he made the, in the inmates of what he called Solomon's House carry out exactly the set of wonders that mathematical magicians had long claimed to be able to do, to create houses of deceit of the senses, vehicles that could go in the air or under the water, that transformations of nature that would make humanity more powerful than it had ever been. Bacon's universe excluded natural magic, but Bacon's program for power over nature was the program of mathematical magic, simply stripped of its original name. Descartes also felt the impact of mathematical magic. It was the success of his optical machine for lens grinding that really gave him his sense of being a prophet of the new science. 
And in one sense, it was Descartes who took the ideas and, practical and practices of mathematical magic most radically far as he applied them to understanding the universe itself. For it was Descartes who argued more forcefully, more directly, more forthrightly than anyone ever had that humans and animals were themselves automata. Machines like the artificial machines you could see in a garden. That human responses to sensory impressions were nothing more than the response of an automaton which would begin to move or play its instrument when an onlooker stepped on a tile that was near it and connected to it. For Descartes, the nerves of a human machine are nothing more than the tubes and mechanisms of an automaton. Now, Descartes' universe, this universe of matter and motion, stands for most of us for a world stripped of magic, stripped of any kind of web of connections between the higher and the lower worlds. Yet it was the mathematical magicians and the engineers they drew on who envisioned knowledge as something you got by working in the world, who envisioned the ability to create automata as proof of knowledge, who modeled the motions of humans and animals with machines. Descartes' very language for discussing the human and animal body, as well as his claims that a true understanding of nature could give power over it, all reflect the depth of his knowledge of the tradition of mathematical magic, which he helped to extirpate. Historians of the phenomena I've talked about for example, Simon Schaffer and Gabrielle Wood, who've written wonderful accounts of the automaton, usually look forward when they talk about them. They connect the rise of automata, for example, with the creation of a new totally mechanized philosophy, with the creation of new absolutist states, modern armies, regimented subjects. These connections are real, but they're not exhaustive. One mustn't take Bacon and Descartes too much at their, word, their literal word when they claim to be prophets of the new. For the substance of their prophecies came to them in part from the tradition that I've tried to sketch. And this is a point of some significance for our understanding, not just of magic as a tradition, but of what we call the scientific revolution. Long ago, that great historian Francis Yates argued that Bacon and Descartes learned from magicians to see humanity as capable of gaining power over nature. Many have criticized Yates on so many points of detail that it would be impossible to go into them. But on the main point, it seems to me, her instincts, as so often, were absolutely correct. In this tradition, this moment of mathematical magic, something new really happened those two millennial streams of magic and engineering practice flowed together. They created a dark, strange lagoon. And when those crabby, challenging creatures, Bacon and Descartes and Mersenne, crawled into that lagoon, they found themselves confronted by a mechanistic way of thinking about the universe, one already in existence, which they took out with them as they crawled out again. To trace the intellectual genealogy of mathematical magic is not just to engage in the intellectual historian's traditional paper chase. It's a way, I'd argue the only way, to recover the forgotten cartographies of the intellectual globe that an apparent oxymoron like mathematical magic once upon a time conveyed. In the second part of the Quixote, 
Cervantes's hero listens with astonishment as a talking head, which looks like the bronze head of a Roman emperor, utters accurate predictions about himself and his acquaintances. Eventually, as rumors about the head spread through the city, the owner is forced by the Inquisition to explain that it works not by diabolic magic, but by a speaking tube. A clever young man in the basement is making the predictions. But... In Don Quixote and Sancho Panza's opinion, Cervantes explains, the head was still enchanted and oracular, which gave more satisfaction to Don Quixote than to Sancho. 21st century readers are likely to see here, as elsewhere in the book, only the hero's capacity for self-deception. In fact, of course, he was giving matchless voice to a period understanding of magic, mathematical magic, one whose loss has made us insensitive to part of the magic of Cervantes's text, as well as to that of the fountains and automata and performers that once upon a time evoked wonder from the blasé inhabitants of Europe's most dramatic squares. Thank you. Aha, <laughs> the engineer speaks. There is an old tradition of uh, the partition doing magic in Archimedes and his machine, and hero of Alexander. But there are two different uh, motivations. One is to amuse, and the other is to empower mankind to do something useful. And in your lecture, it starts off being mostly amusing, and it turns into a more practical user later on. Is there a theoretical foundation behind this picture? Behind the idea that the, the, is there a theoretical foundation behind the idea that these forms of magic could actually be useful? There's certainly a theoretical foundation, and it largely rested on what you could read in the Renaissance in ancient texts about Archimedes who had used technology to military ends and about other ancients. Um, the chief technological achievements of the 15th and 16th centuries um, could also be assimilated to mathematical magic. And one does find some people who see canon, the printing press, even navigational aids as part of this tradition. So that gives a richer theoretical foundation. But normally it's the automata, um, the various optical devices, and the real or imagined vehicles, airplanes, tanks, and uh, and submarines that serve as the legitimation. It's certainly more a program, something, and the expression of a hope than it was something to be realized. This, of course, is not the only time in the engineering tradition when that's true. Um, I guess the other point I'd say is that the sheer ability to operationalize an understanding of nature seemed to provide legitimation. If you could create an automaton that seemed to move or seemed to sing, and they could do that, that seemed to react to stimuli in the environment, that really did seem to prove that one had the power to emulate nature in other ways. And that, in turn, then legitimated the notion that perhaps natural magic could give you other powers, perhaps you could affect your bodily health if you could understand the body in the same mechanical way. 
But it's certainly true. The actual devices they create are mostly designed not so much to amuse, I think, as to instill wonder, um, to instill a particular kind of amazement. Yeah? I was actually thinking of the different type of machine computer I was very interested in, textual machines. And I'm thinking of this article in Napoleon, where he actually creates these little dials in the books to produce, as he claimed, all the knowledge of the world. And I was wondering how you see these little textual machines fitting into your uh, analysis of I think textual machines are actually part of both the engineering and the magical tradition. They're obviously part of the magical tradition. Magic always involves ways of combining numbers or words to produce particular effects. From the 15th century on, however, cryptography was a major part of the engineering tradition. And cryptography always involved the creation of textual machines, for example, cipher wheels. And for me, Kircher, in, in following that out, is really once again combining the two traditions, um, since, in fact, his machines actually do work. And actually, the machines still exist. There's one in Wolfenbüttel that you can, one of his little text machines is there, and there's another, I think, in Würzburg. You can actually see these things functioning. You, so you need to memorize a 700-page Latin poem to get them to work perfectly. And that, that, that's been a bit of a disincentive. But, but, but I would see them as, as, as really being part of the same confluence of, of two traditions. Yeah? An analogy between magic and mathematical magic and non-mathematical magic. And in the works of Newton himself, holding nonsense alchemy and religion and sense and physics and mathematics in and working a whole but Newton's mathematics is not magical. No, I mean, this is, this is the real, there is a real difference. Newton's interest in magic is entirely traditional. He's interested chiefly in alchemy, which is not nonsense, but very interesting chemistry. We now know, thanks to Larry Principe at Johns Hopkins and Bill Newman at Indiana, that you can replicate a good hunk of the experiments of 17th century alchemy, ingredient by ingredient and device by device, and you get actually, you get exactly the results the manuscript tell you you should. So, you know, for 300 years we've dismissed alchemy as stupidity. In fact, um, it was a perfectly coherent language of scientific instruction which alchemists understood and followed. Now, why you'd want to create a homunculus with an oak tree growing out of its genitals that turned gold, you know, is, a, is perhaps a question. But, but, you know, alchemy was not nonsense in the sense that I was taught that it was by a distinguished historian of chemistry 30 years ago. It was a, a functioning way of, of affecting the natural world. Newton, though, lives on the other side of this dissociation as far as mathematics is concerned. For him, mathematics is it's a billiard ball universe of ma matter in motion that you understand in, term, in firm mathematical terms. And for him, mathematics and wonder really seem quite separate. And, action, but action at a distance is proved mathematically. Its presence is proved mathematically, and that, I think, is, is radically different. Graham. You've done such an interesting job of suggesting a continuity in the sense that perhaps we didn't expect between the mathematical, magical tradition and the new philosophy. And yet, it seems after watching this and hearing the talk that there's this enormous discontinuity that's really, really interesting. I just want to see comment on it. It seems for the characters you've described that deception is a kind that there's an epistemology to deception. 
that theater, misrepresentation, trickery, is a way to teach and learn, so it has a pedagogical function. It's also a way, in a sense, to investigate and demonstrate what you know. So there's a sense of play and liveliness for these guys. And, and it, in their light, what happens in the 17th century seems painfully straight. People stop, stop with this routine with conception uh, is part of knowing. And I wonder if you could comment on how that happens. Well, I think, yeah, does deception cease to, you know, and theater cease to be, theatrical deception cease to be the way you prove that you've understood something about nature? Theater doesn't, because I think the lineal descendant of these demonstrations is the 18th century electronic debate where you take 300 monks and attach them to a Leiden jar and watch them jump. Uh, you know, which is about as theatrical an event as I can imagine seeing. Uh, and, you know, and these, you know, the, the whole sort of popular demonstration world of the 18th century seems to me to come fairly directly out of this. Um, the difference is, of course, that the machinery is open in the 18th century demonstration. You're showing a principle which you're laying out. In my people's work, the difference really seems to be whether you're doing mathematical magic or another, or natural magic. If you're doing mathematical magic, the principles are hidden, but you then reveal them. You publish them in a book. You make clear in an intersubjective way how it's done so other people can replicate it. That's clearly one of the characteristics of mathematical magic, and that's why you show the lobster on the, on the, on the vase and explain what you're doing with the lobster. Natural magic, the old form, you never unveil in the same way. Natural magic is something for which you have to be in a certain spiritual condition. You have to pray in a certain way. You have to fast. And the conditions of its working are always much murkier. And it's natural magic that they tend to fake. Kierkegaard's sunflower clock, he fakes with a magnet. It's, I mean, it's actually a compass working, as, you know, which he's pretending to be a clock. And he fakes it precisely because you, you know, he believes that the natural magic should work. He's brokenhearted when he doesn't. And he fakes it, and he doesn't reveal that he's faked it. You, you, and it's actually observers, Gassandi and others, who say, wait a minute, what's the magnet doing here? It's supposed to be working by sunflower power. So I do see two different kinds of instilling of wonder. And I do feel that mathematical magic, again, connects pretty well to 17th century new philosophy. The Descartes' wonder is the beginning of ratiocination. And the, the wonder of the mathematical magicians have something in common and you know, really do have a kind of structural connection. The other thing I have to say, this being Princeton, is that anybody who ever saw Hubert Allier do the tiger reaction you know, has to uh, has to resent the notion that science can't be fun. I mean, this uh, for those who don't know it, he poured two colorless liquids together and produced uh, uh, produced um, orange and black layers. <laughs> and I think he can, he can concluded one of his courses, I think, very dramatically with the Tiger reaction. And uh, I learned about this from his granddaughter, who wrote her senior thesis for me, <laughs> and then went and watched. So I'm, I'm not sure that all the fun has been leached away. Um, during yeah. this period, was there any feeling that, oh, that this new knowledge could fall into evil hands? That's an old tradition. And how did it play out in this period? Was there fear that knowledge could fall into the wrong hands? Absolutely. Um, there was, of course, fear that military knowledge could fall into the wrong hands, technical knowledge. But it is quite clear that um, there was always a fear that 
the devil might be in this. And if diabolical knowledge got into the wrong hands, all hell would really break loose. <laughs> so I, I do think that people like her, her genuinely worry. When they went and saw this regurgitator, they really th entertained a theoretical possibility that he could be working with the devil. And if the devil was really in the Piazza Navona helping a regurgitator, he could also be in the Vatican doing bad things to the Pope. So I think that there is a real sense that the secrets of this knowledge, amusing as it seems to us now, could be in some way really dangerous. Liam, last one. You bring up a point that Kircher, by the middle of the 17th century, is old hat. He's almost passe in what he does. And I wonder if we can't say that there's something intimately linked between him becoming passe and what he is invested in, as in, what I mean by this is, the splendor of mechanical magic helping to explain what he is also best in, which is religion and uh, Baroque Catholicism at this point, and the whitewashed churches, the simplicity of his Protestant observers and their paradigm of religion, if there's not a, a dramatic disconnect there. And this, I think, also plays into Graham's point about deception and trickery and what that's, how that moves away from northern culture, yet is still very, very implicit in the, the experience of religion in Southern Europe. Uh, and not just in Southern, but also in Eastern Catholic Europe. Um, I do think that's right. I do think that, um, you know, and I do think one big question that we don't know anything much about is the role of mathematical magic in the actual church. Um, many automata actually existed in churches in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries. Statues of Jesus, which would nod to the good thief for example. And the borderline between that and actual fraud, which also existed, is, is not an easy one to establish. But I think the larger point is clear. Mathematical magic remains really current in Italy, in parts of Iberia, in parts of Austria, much longer than it does in Holland, in England, and in France. And that that is probably connected with the commercial evolution of the two places, not just with religion, because French Catholics are just as disinclined to the mathematical magic as English Protestants. But the other thing that I do think happens is that attitudes towards wonder from northern Italy up, they really change in a way that they don't change in central and southern Italy. And one more question. It's not Middle Ages, but how would you rate Bob John's project on having the person operating a machine influence the operation of a machine? In what way? You get a different, uh, uh, oh, okay. Depending on the person. Depends on how good your machine is and how well-trained your operator is. Sorry, can't, can't answer that one. <laughs> Jeff? That's certainly right. On the other hand, a lot of the new science is also about effects on audiences. Galileo is also a great rhetorician. This is the great work of Mario Biagioli has really taught us to see Galileo also as a performer. 
who is trying to alter the stakes and the nature of the performance, but is absolutely invested in the same public rhetorical culture. So I, I take your point, and, and rhetoric is a really useful term, which I'm going to steal from you with, with great gratitude. But, but I'm not sure that helps with that identifying that point of rupture that uh, we would all like to find. May I ask uh, all of you to join us uh, outside for a small reception after the lecture, and please join me in thanking Tony for a marvelous lecture.